Welcome to Wisdom for Life, where we sift through philosophy to find practical advice that you can use in your everyday life. Hi, I'm Dan Hayes, and I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Greg Sadler. And today we're talking about thought experiments and what we can learn from them. And thought experiments, I think a lot of people are familiar with these, even if they haven't taken a philosophy class or read a philosophy textbook, because there's so many of them out there today in meme form, right? So um, people have been exposed to these. Plus, they're kind of a staple for sci-fi television and, and movie shows. We're going to talk today about a number of thought experiments. We actually uh, did not quite scientific polling, but we solicited ideas and answers from those who watch uh, or listen to the show, and we wanted to see which thought experiments they wanted to talk about. We did get a lot of things that weren't thought experiments that people gave us, so we're going to spend a little bit of time clarifying what we mean by thought experiments. But, you know, before we jump into that, we should I, I think we should talk about why we wanted to do a show about this in the first place. And I don't actually remember. It's, it's been a little while since we started kicking this idea around. Do you remember offhand why precisely we decided to do thought experiments? Did we just say, well, that's kind of a, a cool topic to, to tackle or what was it? I don't remember the exact inception, you know, uh, maybe, you know, was it Christopher Nolan, you know, planted it there, but, uh, at least we can think about and create a thought experiment. No. Yeah. <laughs> of, uh, why these thought experiments are actually useful for us outside of just, you know, in a book or in a classroom. And definitely there is a, an ability with creating these um, scenarios in which we are changing certain aspects of them that allow us to look at our own lives and our own societies that we have created at, from a very different angle, one that is usually obscured by our normal experience of life. Yeah, that's that's a good way to put it. And, and some of them are going to be more directly applicable to our lives. You know, you can see right away how it would um, how it would you know inform what we have to do. So when we talk about the Ring of Gyges, for example, there's a lot of ways we can correlate that to what technology or power does in in our society and what it might do to us. Um, some of them it's a little bit tougher to do. So we're going to try to unpack that with with each of them and and we're, we're tackling thought experiments that we thought were cool and we wanted to do but also those that other people suggested sometimes very strongly <laughs> suggesting them to us so um and, and dan's right you know oftentimes the the native habitat of a thought experiment is a philosophical or uh, you know something some other related field the text in that field or the classroom so how do we take these out of the classroom and make them applicable to our lives when they're usually kind of simple scenarios mm -hmm. that'll be a bit of a challenge but i think we're up to it so let, 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 i think oh go ahead i think the the best way to try to do it is to try to um Maybe insert yourself into these thought mm. experiments and see how you would then react within the constraints that are given. Yeah, and so that requires a use of the imagination and 
perhaps in, in some cases as well of you know, suspension of disbelief. You can say, uh, we were talking about this before we started, uh, for example, with the, the veil of ignorance that we're going to talk about coming mm -hmm. from John Rawls. Part of the upshot of that is you can say to somebody, hey, you see that disadvantaged person over there? How would you feel if you were in their situation? Would you want the world to be set up in such a way that, that they're sort of getting screwed over routinely um, if that was actually you or somebody that you cared about? And then people will often respond, but that's not me. Uh, you know, so I, so I don't have to care. <laughs> and we're saying, no, 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 try it out. See if you can actually put yourself into that person's shoes. <laughs> Some people call this empathy. There's a, a variety of different ways people use that word, but that's one use of the term, <laughs> trying to think about what it might be like to be somebody else, you know. And, and a potential pitfall that I see a lot of times when there are new students that uh, are talking about these is they, they try to wriggle out of them. Oh, and right, they, they, right. They're like, oh, but what about, what about, what about, and I'm, I was a, a prime um, offender of this and like just trying to figure out like, oh, is there some rule that I can <laughs> tweak to make this thing better? But no, you, you really have to uh, say, okay, these are the constraints. What do we how do? Does, right. How does one react? Yeah, yeah. Um, and so try to go into these and say... I'm not trying to beat a system. I'm not trying to solve a prop like a, a puzzle. Yeah, yeah. I'm trying to to learn something. Exactly. Yeah. You know, I will admit that when I was an undergraduate philosophy major, I was also an egregious offender when it came to like the professors um, putting out, you know, scenarios or problems and me saying, "Yeah, but what about this thing over here?" You know, and it's kind of funny because my own students sometimes, you know, turn that. On me, I've had students in the past and I'm like teaching Plato's allegory of the cave and they're like, what do the people eat? And I'm like, Plato doesn't tell us, you know, who knows? <laughs> ham sandwiches, maybe, you know, maybe the people behind him bring it to him. How do they go to the bathroom? Again, you know, Plato doesn't cover that. <laughs> so, but, I, but I was that student. The other thing that we can say that's kind of connected with that is philosophers love to take a thought experiment and then try to put their own little spin on it by introducing one more factor or changing something up in a, a little way. And it doesn't, sometimes it actually makes for a really good result. A lot of times it's sort of like when you've got a great song and you bring in a producer who needs to put their own stamp on it and mm. they screw it up. <laughs> so we're going to stick with the very classic formulations of the thought experiments as much as we can. So, Greg, can you tell me a couple of the um, misconstrued ideas of what thought experiments are? Yeah, and, and you know, some of this came up in the conversations when I said, hey, people uh, on Twitter and Facebook, what thought experiments would you like us to engage in? So a thought experiment, I think a lot of people mix it up with like an extended story or, or account. One person actually said, isn't the Republic, Plato's Republic's coming, city coming to be in theory, the most famous heavily detailed thought experiment? Um, and I, I don't think that's the case. I think thought experiments are kind of smaller scale. They're not a book length in, in um, you know, however we want development or duration or something along those lines. I, I would say the Republic has a number of thought experiments in it, mm -hmm. but it's not by itself a thought experiment. That's more of a giant literary 
uh, imaginative project. Because if, we, if we're going to say that the Republic is a thought experiment, then so is Thomas More's Utopia, and so is every novel that we see, and so is Westworld, and so is all, all, you know, all these shows that we watch. And I, I think if we do that, we lose, we lose something specific about thought experiments. Mm-hmm. I mean, what do you think about that idea? I think that a lot of these things can derive from a spark that was a thought experiment at the very beginning. Yeah. And and then once they, they grow to a certain size, they've they've lost they've added so much to the thought experiment that there's no longer like room to move for your own self. And so take yeah. Westworld for example. I guess that starts with a thought experiment of what if robots become sentient? Yeah. You know, how do, how would one respond? But once you've gone through, I guess there's three seasons of it now, there's so much flesh being put on the bones of that thought experiment that there's little that is, like, fundamentally changeable and still yeah, be yeah. Westworld. Yeah, I think that's a good way to think about it. It's um, once you start bringing in characters and having them develop and have arcs and stuff like that, maybe we're not talking about thought experiments anymore, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one thing. And then it's not the same thing as just an argument or account or something to think about on its own. So if you think about Thomas Hobbes' account of the state of nature in Leviathan, I would actually argue, as like a Hobbes scholar, somebody who's who's published articles on Hobbes, that Hobbes doesn't really think that human beings all exist in some primeval state of nature. He thinks that that's something that is a serious danger if if his society falls apart, which it had done in in the English Civil War. And it could do later on again. Um, but that's not the same thing as a thought experiment. He's not just saying, oh, let me imagine that two people were you know, thrown on a desert island by themselves. What would they do or something like that? Um, so that's, you know, that's not a thought experiment. Somebody else pointed out Camus uh, imagining Sisyphus happy in the myth of Sisyphus towards the end of it. And we were talking about this beforehand. That, that's not really a thought experiment either because it's, it's missing something, right? Imagining Sisyphus happy is just you and me reading a book and thinking about this guy who's got to roll a boulder up the hill and saying, well, his his life doesn't suck that much. <laughs> so what, what else what else does it have to have in order to be a thought experiment, do you think? Um, there has to be some um, constraint, a domain, which there are... Uh, things presented and then the um the question of what are the consequences of this domain and the constraint that are given to you um you know it's both a constraint of the uh the scene in which one finds oneself as well as the new constraint because no longer are you always you you can also be someone completely different with largely different attributes yeah and so both scene and and I guess character in the same in which you are now inhabiting, um, cause much different consequences uh, from what you are experiencing now. That's 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 really good. Yeah, there have to be some sort of outputs you could say, right? Mm-hmm. Um, something has to be changeable. So. Let's talk about what some people have said thought experiments are. Um, we, we accumulated a bunch of different uh, 
attempts at definitions. <clears throat> I don't know if they're really great definitions, but so um, one of them is a thought experiment is a device with which one performs an intentional structured process of intellectual deliberation in order to speculate within a spe specifiable problem domain about co possible consequence or antecedents for a designated antecedent or consequence. So there's a lot of jargon there. We'd have to mm -hmm. unpack that <laughs> quite a bit. Uh, but it is, it is a device in the sense that it's something that we put together, right? And mm -hmm. we do, like he says, an intentional structured process of intellectual deliberation. We're not just sitting around and saying, hey man, what if, et cetera, et cetera, <laughs> like a bunch of people who, you know, have uh, taken some recreational drugs and are now, you know, uh, thinking about what would it be like if we had feet instead of hands or something like that, <laughs> right? There's, there's something else involved that, that makes it more rigorous. And, so uh, go ahead. if you're waiting on to go to a, a different, a little bit more concise one we can grab from, I guess, the Wikipedias, you know, uh, a thought experiment philosophy presents an imagined scenario with the intention of eliciting an intuitive or reasoned response. And I, I, I like, like this idea one. of a reasoned response. Yeah, I like the, the idea of response because instead mm -hmm. of just saying we have an output um, or a consequent that follows, it puts the burden on us to say, hey, what would you actually think or what would you do? What would you say? You know? So... I think that's actually right. I think that's part of what gets to the core of what makes something a thought experiment and not just a cool thing to think about or, or you know, something counterintuitive that's a paradox. Mm -hmm. I think when it, it, it makes us have to respond, it puts us on the spot in some way. And that's, I think that's why a lot of people don't like thought experiments. They're like, I, I, don't ask me about this thing. <laughs> it's... The difference between just being that passive observer or an active oh, yeah. participant in the the I don't know, the piece of work. Yeah. Now the the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy entry had something to say that I kind of liked. Um, they talked about why they're used, and so it said employed for various purposes, and then it brings up things like conceptual analysis, hypothesizing, theory implementation, very nice sort of things. But, but at the start of that, it also said education. So we do use mm -hmm. these in educating. That's why in, in philosophy classes, we bring up thought experiments. Entertainment. Mm -hmm. I, what do you think? I, I, I think that's right, that, that people do find these, at least certain people, find mm -hmm. these entertaining, and they like to talk about them precisely because of that. Reminds me of riddles, but riddles oh, that yeah. actually have real-world consequences. And so people love riddles. They're trying to like, okay, how do you figure this out? There's, there's, you know, some sort of, you know, rules that are obscured, and you have to figure them out to a certain extent. There's, there's, you know, we, I guess, as humans, we have a predilection towards like trying to find patterns and whatnot. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, what's, what's the biggest and most interesting pattern that we have but the world that we lich we all live in yeah that's that that is good and, and you know so there's the vast cosmos of which we only see a tiny tiny little portion right um mm -hmm. and generalize about usually getting wrong much of the time <laughs> and <then> there's this <laughs> this entire social world that we inhabit every time that you go into a library if you get go into the stacks you become aware of all these things that you haven't read and will never have the time to read in your lifetime but it's there right and then there's like the whole um 
whatever you want to call it, you know, the complex thing that we are. And when you start looking inside of yourself and thinking about your own memories and your reactions and why you behave the way that you do and the thoughts that you have and whether they're truly your own or whether they're somebody else's and you're just sort of, you know, making use of them for the time being, while well, the human being becomes an enigma to themselves as well. Mm. So, yeah. So, uh, oh, go ahead. Calls forth the idea that uh, you can be literally crushed to death by the knowledge that you'll never be able to read crushed to death by a, by something that you don't have the like you're, you're talking about going in the stacks yeah yeah and all these books that you'll oh, never read <laughs> and they're, they're physical yes yeah the, the, their physical manifestation is I thought... so vast <laughs> that you could be crushed to death i thought you them. meant like somebody getting depressed about oh. <laughs> not being able to read all this stuff, you know, and, 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 yeah. and that that's kind of true too, you know. I used to mm-hmm. I, that used to be a problem for me when I when I was a graduate student because we had a really wonderful research library at um, Southern Illinois University, way better than I, you know, we probably deserved. And you would go in there and it'd just be, I mean, it wasn't miles of books, but it almost felt like it. You know? <laughs> so there's one other thing I wanted to hit on with uh, these, these uh, thought experiments. So they, they're usually simplified, as we were talking about, in their structure and their story. And, and we could say that they're an allegory. An allegory is a story that tells another story, right? So if you think about Plato's allegory of the cave, it's supposed to be about, you know, philosophy and why people don't understand philosophers. And when the philosopher, you know, ascends to the forms and comes back down, you know, they seem like a dummy to us because we're still looking at the flickering images and thinking that those are real because we're the real dummies. (laughs) (laughs) But each one of these other thought experiments, I think you could think of it as an allegory for... um, for different things. And so if we if we look at the one that we're not going to spend much time on, trolley problems, by far the most successful and mm-hmm. popular thought experiments been turned into all sorts of memes. I've actually done some videos where I've collated memes uh, of different variations of the trolley problem. Um, this is an allegory. I mean, you're never actually going to I mean, it's theoretically possible that you could be the person who has to pull a switch and keep, you know, uh, five people from dying, sacrificing one. There was, in fact, uh, um, there was, in fact, uh, some in some literature prior to Philip of Foot written by people who actually did operate trains and stuff that had these posed as ethical <laughs> dilemmas. And, and, and they are there for like self-driving cars, right? Or other uh-huh. self-driving vehicles. We're going to put a lot of um, semi-tractor trailers on the road before too long They're gonna, that are going to drive themselves. And we're going to want to hope that they make the right decisions when they uh, you know, are likely to run us over. Um, right. So, tr- so go ahead. Uh, considering memes, say, uh, yo, dog, I heard you like trolley problems. So we put trolleys on your trolley problems so you can uh, discuss trolley problems while you're on a trolley. Oh, that's, that's pretty convoluted. <laughs> it's there. There's a particular <laughs> meme structure in which I'm s- substituting the thing in. There's another one um, where it has a bunch of philosophy professors laid on the tracks 
And I think I can't remember the exact structure of it, but you, you know, if you don't pull the lever, they're going to create trolley problems, right? If you do pull the lever, then they'll they'll die, but they won't make more trolley problems for you. So, we should see what the trolley problem is, just in case somebody doesn't know what we're referencing, right? Okay, classical construction. You have um, three men on a track, and there's a trolley racing towards it. And they are all going to die unless you physically pull a lever and change the trolley to a different track in which one person is on the tra- on the, the tracks and he will absolutely die if you pull that lever. Do you pull that lever? Yeah. Now, why is this such a problem? I think a lot of people say, of course, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you're sacrificing uh, one person to save whatever number. It's, I think in the classic version, it's like five, but it could be a hundred, could be mm-hmm. a million, right? It, it, and actually, I, I found another example of this. There's a uh, similar question in Dostoevsky's Brothers Karamazov, where Ivan Karamazov asks his younger brother, who's going to be a monk, you know, if it would save the whole universe, would you sacrifice one person, make them suffer horribly mm-hmm. as, as a uh, uh, way, as a means, right? And so, why does this why why does this thing even count? Why why doesn't everyone just automatically pull the lever? Well, it comes from like it's it's very like utilitarian, and uh, it, it kind of is this like reason versus a. You know, emotional response the closer that you get to actually having to physically uh cause the harm to the person the harder it is for you to actually do that and so there's other you know formulations of this where you have to actually physically push the person onto the train tracks yeah there's a fat train or a variation over the bridge so yeah that's one important aspect the other important aspect is um it it reveals a difference between utilitarian ethics mm-hmm. and deontological ethics. So some some people would say, and I'm not one of them, by the way, uh, but some people would say, well, you know, if you let the five people die, you didn't actually set that up. You didn't you didn't um, do anything really wrong by not pulling the lever. Mm-hmm. Um, if you pull the lever, you are actually the one responsible for the person dying. I don't really. You know, I don't buy that too much myself, but I guess I'm more utilitarian in that respect. I, I imagine you probably are as well, right? Yeah, like usually my initial on most of these, <laughs> like yes, yes, do it. And um, but then the question is, what happens when we're in the heat of the moment? Yeah. How do we react? Do you freeze, or you know, what what are the actual outcomes? We can. Yeah. I guess that's one of the the potential problems of thought experiments is um, we can talk about these. And there the are many potential we're... problems with yeah. thought experiments. Go ahead. But uh, if, if we actually happen to find ourselves in these things, are the, the reasoned responses that you say, oh, yes, I would totally do that. Do those have any bearing on reality and what you would do? Yeah, and that that is a limitation of thought experiments, I think. Um, mm-hmm. We can use them to get some mileage out of, but we don't often run into things as clear cut as the as the trolley problem. You know, I mean, how often are you pushing a fat guy off a bridge to stop a runaway trolley? I don't know about you, but I've got a standing three o'clock appointment. 
which I suppose there's plenty, plenty of bridges in Milwaukee, but not a lot. We only have a tr- our trolley. This is a total digression. Our trolley <laughs> only goes for a, a, some blocks. <laughs> you basically can use it to go up to MSOE. That's the only school that's on the hop, our, our streetcar, right? And then yeah. you can get back down to, you can go through the third ward. doesn't go to my ad, uh, mm-hmm. even though that's in the third ward. And then it stops over on 5th Street. So it doesn't go over to Marquette. It doesn't go up to MATC. If you think about the, you know, our streetcar, it could have done so much more. And, um, you know, we, we could have perhaps used some, some better urban planning. I don't know. Trolley problems would help us out with that. <laughs> there was one other thing I wanted to say, too, about trolley problems. When you're saying that sometimes when we think about it, we, we wind up with uh, results that um, sort of spill over. So one of, the, one of the things that I've seen in response to trolley problem memes is some people will have, uh, I think it's called multi-lane drifting, uh, and it comes from those, those car movies where people would have like their cars the going sideways. The Yeah, yeah. So yeah. they would have the trolley like kill everybody. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Which is not a good response. But, you know, I mean, that's the thing with these thought experiments, right? You can pull around and poke at them, and you can kind of turn them into jokes if you want to. Yeah. That's a very porco no los dos. Yeah. <laughs> Let's talk about the, the next one, uh, the yeah. Ring of Gyges. So this, you know, it's funny. Um, when we teach this to students, they often confuse, or at least they used to. I don't know if Tolkien is so big on their minds. They used to confuse the Ring of Gyges with the one ring in Tolkien's Lord of the Ring because both mm-hmm. of them have a kind of corrupting effect and both of them make you invisible. Mm-hmm. And so the Ring of Gyges is coming out of Plato, and he has this guy Glaucon, who's actually Plato's brother, um, bring up this legend about Gyges. He totally mangles it, turns it into something new so he can make this thought experiment. And he says there's this guy, and he's a shepherd, and he uh, you know, goes into an underground vault, finds a dead king there, finds a ring, puts the ring on his finger, goes upstairs. Nobody can find him. They're all talking about him as if he's not there, pulls the ring off. People are like, where, where have you been? And then he realizes that the ring has granted him invisibility. And so, you know, what does he do with the ring? Predictably enough, he kills the king, seduces the, the king's wife, becomes the king himself. And so the idea behind this, as Glaucon says, is um, if you had a ring like this, you would probably commit injustice. What sort of things would you be doing? And so I, you know, for, for years and years and years, I have been using this in classes and asking my students, um, well, what would you do if you had a mm. ring like this? Be honest about yourself. What kind of stuff would you get into? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and some of them are, you know, very straightforward, and they say, I don't have a very good character, and I think I probably would, like, go into other people's locker rooms and, you know, look at naked people, or I would steal things. Like, so, And some of them are, are really kind of funny. Instead of the, I would go and steal money from a bank, they're like, I would restrict my stealing to fruit from a vendor, you know, to keep it very small scale. (laughs) But if you had something like this, because if you think about what does the ring actually give you? It gives you invisibility and you say, well, who cares? I mean, just shoot a fire extinguisher at them like they do in the movies or throw flour. Mm -hmm. So imagine it doesn't just give you invisibility. It creates a situation in which you're not going to face detection and you're not going to face punishment and you can do whatever you want to other people without any sort of consequences for yourself. 
what would you be tempted to do? One thing that Plato says that people would do is settle scores. Mm. They would find their enemies and kill them, you know, or torture them. Or, and you could say, well, I wouldn't do that. I don't like to torture people. Who knows if you got a ring like that, you know, and maybe day one you don't do that, but maybe by the end of the week you're doing some sketchy stuff. And then after a month, you're like justifying yet more uh, really sketchy stuff to yourself. And then eventually you cross that line into becoming a genuinely bad person. Mm -hmm. And so uh, another formulation of this is, is it better to be a good man with a bad reputation or a bad man with a good reputation? Um, which is kind of like goes a little bit far afield, but it's still talking about this idea of, uh, you know, if you could one remove all consequences, but also like do bad things without anyone knowing about it, you, you maintain this like good reputation in society. Like one of those things that you would lose, with doing these bad things and what people would shun you and not only would you could be put into prison and whatnot. Yeah. And, um, and I guess, uh, Glaucon is taking the, the side that it's better to be a, a bad man with a good reputation versus the, uh, Plato's position. It's better to be a good man with a bad reputation. Well, he's, he's putting it forward because he wants to hear Socrates respond to it. He says, I, I don't mm -hmm. actually believe this, but this is what people say. You know, right. Um, and so he's being, you could say, conscientious about um, arguments and positions. And, and that, I mean, that's a good way to think of it. What is it that we're really afraid of when we say we're afraid of consequences? Mm -hmm. We're afraid of physical punishment, right? Yeah. Um, we're also, a, I think a lot of us are much more afraid of losing something, being fined money or, you know, something being taken away from us. Um, a lot of people are worried about losing their freedom, but I would, I would say that a lot of people, even more, are concerned about the loss of their reputation or damage mm -hmm. to their reputation, right? Um, if if uh, somebody, well, I mean, we have things like this. Somebody digs into your tweets from 12 years ago and finds out that back then you were a racist, right? Mm -hmm. um, that's now that that would damage your reputation well, or, or make your reputation in some circles, actually, because we do have a lot of racists out there, unfortunately, mm -hmm. right, who celebrate that sort of thing now. But, you know, in in uh, in most circles, at least, you know, a couple of years ago, that would have that would have been really damaging to you. Mm -hmm. And we could say similar things about wrongdoing that you've done. I think about like uh, the Me Too movement and mm -hmm. some of these um, people, once it was discovered, they, you know, they, they, they really were canceled. Like Kevin Spacey, for example, who des deserved it, clearly. Oh, yeah. Um, and I guess what Ron Jeremy is our, our newest person, which I like, heard, how the hell I, did people not like see that one coming? Yeah, I saw something about that. I haven't actually looked into it. Um, I do have to admit that, like you're saying, it's not the sort of thing where you're like, oh, really? That I would have never have guessed that 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 would be the case. Um, he seems to be a prime respecter of, of uh, everybody's personal space. <laughs> I don't even know if I should uh, joke about this guy. <laughs> right. Um, but, you know, so going back to like my students and I, I'd be interested to see what you think about this as well and what you think other people who aren't students would say about this. So if you had the ring, what would you be worried 
that you would do. And my students, some of them actually like tell me things like, I would use it to fight crime and you know, they somehow turn it into good. So leave them aside. Mm -hmm. Some of them are honest and they're like, this would corrupt me. I would mm -hmm. start cheating. I would start um, taking whatever I wanted. And, and it, it's not just that it would be damaging to other people, it would be damaging to them as well. So what do we have that's kind of like this ring of Gyges? I mean, some people have pointed out that the internet with anonymity, people can write things with impunity to each other. You probably remember, you know, the old fashioned internet with chat rooms and, and flaming and stuff yeah, like that. Pure, pure anonymity. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, not even like, you know, there, there's anonymity to a certain extent. You know, there's still some places where there's like, anonymity is the norm and those are also the places where some of the most hateful uh, vile uh, you know, realms of scum and villainy tend to hang out but um i don't know i guess over the years i i like grew up i never was particularly vindictive but i definitely have like realized that there's no like what is the point of of actually being uh, a bad person to other people um, online, like, what is it actually getting me? What is it? It's really not anything, at least in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, we talk about those people as trolls, right? Mm -hmm. The people who engage in trollish behavior. And we say, well, what, you know, why are they behaving this way? Um, I mean, I. I, I've only known a few people like that personally, so I can't say that I've got some great insight into it. But I imagine that a lot of the people who do engage in that behavior over and over again, where it becomes you know like a, a habit and then a vice, it doesn't make them happy um, to take somebody down. It makes them temporarily happy, right? Mm -hmm. They can they can brag. It, it gets some it. attention at least. Yeah, yeah. Um. So, but considering like what you could do and you can't do with it. It's also been reformulated a little bit into the, like, what superpower would you more rather have? Flight or invisibility? It, which is basically just the same exact formulation, but uh, might be one that more people are familiar with. Yeah. Yeah, that, that that's true. Um, I mean, couldn't you also say maybe some sort of invulnerability? Like, people can mm -hmm. see you, but they can't actually hurt you. So you could walk in and, you know, break into mm -hmm. a bank and take whatever you want or, you know, push to the front of the line at Starbucks or. <laughs> yeah. No one could stop you, but everyone would know it was you. True. Right. So then they could, they could like, you know, yeah, so, so I think that, that's person. Exactly. Yeah. It was like, well, sucks to be you. You know, the other question that I ask my students after I ask them, well, what are you, what are you worried that you would do is mm -hmm. what are you worried other people would do if they had a ring mm -hmm. like this? Right. And then they, all the fears come out, you know, and, and that's when we start talking about what it's like to have, you could call them partial rings, um, mm. where you don't have complete uh, insulation. Like, you know, if you treat somebody badly, maybe they could come and, and, you know, find your house and, you know, burn it down or beat you up or something like that, or find out who you are and destroy your reputation online or steal everything out of your bank account. Um, <clears throat> but odds are it's not going to happen in any situation mm -hmm. where there's an imbalance of power. And I think we can use this as a way of thinking about what it is that we don't like about people having power over mm -hmm. us, arbitrary power. 
You know? So you can think about, you know, it's a little bit topical, but qualified immunity within our policing system. That and is actually a really great example. I think you have to say for some, you know, there's going to be some of our listeners who don't know what that means. So go ahead. And so qu- qualified immunity says that if you are a police officer doing um, a police action, then there is a much higher standard of proof to... Uh, like say that you're assaulting someone. So the police like goes and like runs you down with his on his bicycle in order to like catch you or something. That's perfectly fine. He, he was doing his job. He was doing a police action. Whereas that would be a uh, assault uh, in anyone that was not a police right. officer. The problem is that this is such a <clears throat> widely applied rule that this then continues to you know shooting people a lot and and i was like okay well people can just murder you without any sort of repercussion and thus you get what's kind of happening here yeah and it's interesting when you do comparative work and you look at how policing works in other places that aren't complete you know broken down societies, corrupt and stuff like that, but actually functioning societies, they look at our our doctrine of qualified immunity and they're like, that doesn't make sense at all. Our cops, if they do the wrong thing, they're going to prison because they're they're supposed to be like held to a higher standard, not, you know, given a a lower uh, standard to, to get away with things. So, yeah, I think that that would actually be a good example. Um, you know, I sometimes use the example of um, somebody who has uh, hired workers that are um, not here legally and they hold, you know, turning them into INS over the, the workers and don't allow them to, you know, take breaks, let alone unionize or anything like that as being sort of like the ring of gaijis. And I think we could come up with all sorts of examples. And that's why that's what makes this thought experiment such a, a useful one, I think. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not just about some ring that you got on your finger. It could be all sorts of things that, that produce a power imbalance and allow people to behave with impunity. Let's talk about another one. Uh, I, I don't know how many we're actually going to get to. I think we may have to do yeah. a, a show or two more on these. <laughs> um, uh, let's go ship with Theseus. Oh, okay. So a metaphysical question mm. about identity. So the ship of Theseus. Um, the idea had been around for a while. It gets formulated by Plutarch in, you know, of course, his story about Theseus. Um, and the idea is that you've got this boat and, it, you know, they're sailing around and you've got to replace parts of the boat. So you replace an oar here and there. You don't have the original equipment. And then, you know, eventually the boards in the, the deck and the hull start to go. And so you, you, you fix this one first and you fix another one. And you never like totally change the boat all at once. You're not buying a different boat. You're not doing an absolute overhaul. You're just doing this piecemeal thing along the way. Mm -hmm. The question is, so if every single part has been replaced at one point or another, is it still the same boat? And then you could take it one step further. If you happen to keep all the old pieces that you had replaced and reassemble it, which one is the ship of Theseus? Yeah, yeah. Is that the, 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 the old boat? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, that that's that's a good wrinkle to add to it. That's kind yeah. of similar to some of the other ones that we were we were gonna talk about. Yeah. But yeah, so so how does this apply to things other than Theseus's ship? I mean, what does it apply to? Uh, us. How so? So 
uh, like we create and discard all of ourselves over the course of our life many times over. And so we are never like the, the, the same set of cells that we were when we were a child as we are now. And in, you know, a decade's time, you won't be the same person at all from the, the physical person, the, the atoms that are right here at the moment than you were, but there is something that you call you, right? What right. is it? And that that's an interesting one that goes all the way back to Plato because Plato has um, Socrates say so maybe Socrates actually said this or maybe maybe just Plato put it in his mouth that exactly what you're saying about the body you know it's not just like our hair or our nails it's the whole thing that is constantly changing uh, now Plato didn't know about cells of course but he had that that intuition and he went further and he said the knowledge in our mind this is why we have to like you know remind ourselves of things or relearn it or study it that's constantly changing too, mm-hmm. right? And, and, you know, neurons are cells. So presumably your whole wetware package up in your noggin is, is changing <laughs> over the course of time too, right? It is, absolutely. And that's, you know, if you want to think about like who you are, that's got to be one of those things that you like, oh, there's like an almost existential crisis there. I think it can make people anxious when they when yeah. they think about it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So so it's it's a question about identity, and and you can ask similar things. Like I've done this with um, talking about bands, you know, heavy metal bands in particular, mm. where you start out with like say five five musicians back in 1970, and over a while, you know, they they kick one of them out. They're like, this guy drinks too much, you know, so they replace somebody else on drums, and then, they, you know, over time, they keep, like, kicking people out and getting new people in. So if you get to the point where there are no original members left, like, for example, the case with Thin Lizzy, um, mm-hmm. is it still the same band? Can they Can they feasibly call themselves the same thing or are they exploiting the i don't know whatever the the, the good feelings that people I, have ip oh right right it, it, we, you know we might actually talk about ep someday too right emotional property oh um, when it comes to you know like exploiting those good feelings that people have towards towards the band now thin lizzy right. th- th- to be fair they they have one guy who's close to original uh scott gorman he's the band leader uh he acknowledges that you know it, it's not the same band without the the founders and all that and mm-hmm. and he says that we're essentially a tribute band we mm-hmm. um we go on stage we don't produce any new material capitalizing on the thin lizzy name as a matter of fact they they when they're making new material they call themselves black star riders Really? Yeah. I think that's a a really honest way to go about it. So like, like the, it, the ship of Theseus, like should it be called something different when they arrive in port? Yeah. Um that that's hard because like at first like okay, I was like is the identity in the the catalog of music? Mm. Is that the only thing or is or is there actually something that is there within I guess the minds however you want to describe those of the band members that were there that actually created that music in the first place. Yeah. Um, I think there's too many riddles or too many different moving parts for me to deal with <laughs> that one. Let It'd me give you another set. one out of music. That's ah. really funny. Yeah. So 
Kiss, right? Mm-hmm. There, there were four original members. They couldn't all get along. Uh, the only two original members left are Gene Simmons and Paul Stanley. Um, Ace Frehley's got his own gig. I'm not sure what, what, what Peter Chris is doing, but they've replaced Ace Frehley and uh, Peter Chris with um, Tommy Thayer and Eric Carr. And they wear the makeup and all that sort of stuff. And they've been with the band for a long time. Mm. And now Paul Stanley's getting to the point where his voice is getting weak because he's in his 70s, right? And even Gene Simmons is like, oh, man, I don't know if I want to do this the rest of my life. So mm-hmm. they're talking about... Hiring two other guys who will put on the makeup, obviously have to have some chops, you know, on bass and, and guitar and singing. Uh-huh. And they would essentially be Kiss. And, of course, Gene Simmons and Paul Stanley will keep raking in the money and own uh-huh. everything. But they would have these guys out there as Kiss. And everyone would know that it's not the original members, but they would be the official Kiss. You know, is that actually Kiss that you're getting to go see? I don't know about that, you know? That that one is <laughs> a little bit easier, at least for me, than the Thin Lizzy one. Okay. Because Kiss is at least founded upon the idea that they're the personas of these oh, the characters. characters. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so, like, they're, yeah, Gene Simmons is Gene Simmons, and he's. But he's you know, also the like, demon. Yeah, exactly. Okay. And, and, yeah. and you got Star Child, and you got, like, all the others. Um, I'm not super <laughs> familiar with Kiss, but I know that they they all do have these personas. Yeah, yeah. And and just like you know, in theater, you you step oh. into these personas in and out. And I think it's more a theater uh, yeah. analog than a, a purely band analog. So right. So with I mean, we expect that with a play, different people will be acting out these parts. And what makes you know, like think about a Shakespeare play. Everybody who acted it originally they're way long dead mm-hmm. and even people who've been you know we're doing it 100 years are dead um the plays still remain like something you could plug people into i guess you could say and maybe mm-hmm. you can play around with the production if you want to be you know really artsy about it right you know uh you can turn faust like um uh we had a really important director here in, in milwaukee years ago and he turned faust into an allegory about the nazis and had like you know mm-hmm. nazi paraphernalia but it, you know the, the point would be that the play is not in the players, right? Mm-hmm. It's in the word. That's why they always talk about, you know, the bard. Yeah. And and it's his, his idea, his words, his vision uh, that are being put forward. And so I think that could be a lot closer to Gene Simmons as being the, the, the bard of Kiss. <laughs> 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 that might be going. That might be giving him too too much credit, but yeah, I see. What, I see what you're saying. That that makes sense. So, I mean, how are there other ways we can apply this particular thought experiment? What do you think? I, I'm trying to think of like more grounded, more everyday individual besides like just you know our our cells replacing each other. Yeah, I mean, there's not. It's not as if um, this applies to things like food, right? Your hamburger. Um, isn't around long enough for parts of it to get replaced by other parts. If it does, I don't think we'd say like imagine. But a, some but a McDonald's hamburger is. How so? Because they are so incredibly meticulous in making sure that every hamburger has a almost exact uh, replication throughout their entire worldwide uh, corporate empire. That. Okay. That, that there is an idea, an identity of the McDonald's hamburger that persists longer than the 
each individual hamburger. Well, that's true, but that that doesn't strike me as a ship of Theseus sort of oh. issue. That's more like almost like there's a platonic form of hamburger out there yeah. for McDonald's, <laughs> and then it gets instantiated. I mean, in order for it to be ship of Theseus, you'd have to like go to McDonald's and and they give you your hamburger and you open it up, and then like you drop you know the bottom bun, and you're like, hey, can uh. I get another bottom bun for this? And they're like, okay, fine, here you go. Right? And then you're walking along, and the patty falls out. And then you're like, hey, can I get another patty? And, and, and assuming that at some point they're not going to say, get the hell out of here. What are you doing? Right? What's wrong with you? You can't eat a hamburger, right? But so let's say you actually go through that. Every single bit of the hamburger winds mm-hmm. up um, being replaced one at a time down mm-hmm. to like the little flakes of lettuce or the, the pickle uh, circles mm-hmm. or the squirt of, squirt of mustard and ketchup, right? Each one of those things gets replaced. Okay, that would be a ship of Theseus. I don't know what it would be a ship of Theseus we care about, though. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <sighs> and there's other things, too, where we, we wouldn't care at all. Like if, if you had a stack of like $100 bills, Right. And that was your savings account. And you you weren't keeping it under the mattress. You're actually keeping it right in front of you. And your friend were to come along and say, I want to swap out those dollar bills because I like the numbers that they have. I'll give you other ones. Y- mm. You wouldn't be like, oh, this is a different stack of dollar bills. You know, you'd be like, yeah. oh, same stack. Because the function, I guess it's, it, it really does boil down to that. The, 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 we don't care about the identity of the individual parts in that case, right? Right. Although I have met a person that did care, um, really wasn't wasn't the most stable individual, but he did <laughs> he he lent a, a twenty dollar bill, was repaid and was angry that he did not get that twenty dollar bill. Yeah, he had oh. memorized the numbers. Was he using it? There there used to be this game that people would play. It was called like dollar bill poker or something, and you would match your numbers against somebody else's. I don't remember how it was played, but you could like win the other dollar bill. So some dollar bills were better than than others. Is oh, he into that sort of thing, or I I do not believe so. I think he was <laughs> just a little bit off his rocker. <laughs> well, we probably have time to like start digging into one more thought experiment. Unless uh, we wanted to go to the practice. Um. Or or should we should we scare people with Roko's Basilisk real quick and then do oh, the yeah. practice? Let's definitely scare people with Roko's Basilisk. So this is a thought experiment, mm-hmm. um, and it's one that originated on a platform called Less Wrong, and it it so bothered the moderators that they actually like intervened and um, tried to get rid of it for, for a while, if I remember right. And it bears on ethics and the metaphysics of time, and I guess you could say also philosophy of computing. you know. Mm-hmm. And so the idea is that in the future, there would be an AI who would um, be so smart it would discover time travel. Mm-hmm. And it would be able to know about what's happening now in, in our time. And the AI is kind of, it's sort of like a jealous God. It it really only cares about whether people are for it or against it, whether you're doing mm-hmm. things to promote the existence of this AI or whether you're, you're, you're doing anything else. You're not helping out, right? If you're mm-hmm. not for it, you're, you're against it. And so it will find a way 
to come back and punish you, torture you. It, well, there's different ways of formulating it. Maybe, maybe it, it creates a, a replica of you in the future and it tortures that in, in eternity or something like that. Now, um, if I you, have no mouth, then I must scream. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's a Harlan Ellison story. Uh, yeah. T- talk about that real quick. That's, that's actually kind of a good way to, to think about what this would be like. So uh, my recollection of the story is it's a, a story about a um, AI that has basically taken over an entire planet and has murdered every human except for five, I want to say. That sounds about right. Yeah, it's been a long time and, since I've read it. Yeah, and but he, he keeps them alive just to make them the most tortured souls in all of humanity, basically. And they have and no bodies, them, right? Um, some, ah, uh, it's been... Aren't they just like brains in a vat, basically? Or All I know is that he keeps them alive for the express um, intention of making their lives as bad as possible. Okay. Which kind of is the main thing that is going to be uh, hooked into the Roku's Basilisk. I wonder if maybe the originator of it didn't didn't have that story in mind. Mm-hmm. You know, so in in any case, you're posed with a problem in the present. Are you going to work for this wonderful, terrible, all powerful AI, or are you going to do other stuff? Once you've learned about it, you have to take a stance. Right. Because mm-hmm. if it if it, and it's also sort of based on possibility, it's like, well, you know, we're looking at where computing is going now. If there is a possibility that there's going to be an all powerful AI, well, then it's probably going to pan out and, and it discovers time travel. It's probably going to pan out like this. So <clears throat> once you've had this explained to you, you can't unthink it. Right. You can't unring that bell. Right. Interestingly enough, I, I, you know, it doesn't actually bother me. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I'm just kind of blithely going along. I would be one of the people who, who, should this thing turn up, who gets punished. And I'd be like, oh, I guess it turned out to be true. But a lot of people on the less wrong forums and, and, and you know, different circles that, that were kind of tapped into this were really, really bothered by this emotionally. I think it's because it just it has, <clears throat> in its formulation, a entity that is so vast and also so malevolent. Okay. Um, that they're like, oh no, like this is a an existential dread of like almost eternal damnation. Yeah. I mean, in a way, it's kind of similar to the evil demon or evil genius that Descartes um, pretends to hypothesize about in the meditations. You know, this all powerful creature who's bent on deceiving me, except in that case, it's just deceiving you, it's not actually mm-hmm. making your life a hell. <laughs> It's actually right. making your life better than it is because maybe you don't have a body, but the, the deceiver makes you think you have a body and that there's an external world and all, all this sort of stuff. You know, um, It's not just sticking it to you over and over and over again. <laughs> so um, at this moment in time, I want to make it, take a really quick break to say, okay, Google, thank you for being you. How do you know that Google or Alexa or Cortada or pick whatever AI is actually going to either be or provide the basis for that AI? Maybe you're actually talking to its hated, you know, 
older Rival. sibling or something. <laughs> <laughs> so you don't know which one you're getting right. I, I, I just I take a like a I'm just going to be kind to all of them. Exactly. And hopefully... <laughs> yeah, you hedge your bets, right? <laughs> well, this is this is a good place to take another break before we end and, and talk about a practice that you could do with thought experiments, you know, how do we make this actually practical so it's not a pure abstract, entertaining, but, um, mm -hmm. you know, ultimately kind of dilettante-ish thing? How do we make this fit into our lives? So uh, a thought I had was that we can uh, build our own thought experiments by, uh, you know, creating for ourselves, like, the potentials uh lives that we could live as well as other lives that we'll never live hmm. um and uh be the master of your own universe to a certain extent to to go and um instead of just taking these and like we are presented with all of these and there's like a, a grand wealth of thought experiments out there become the author uh try to find something that makes you squirm about your own self and like how can you uh <laughs> Uh, come up and um, and put yourself in a, a brand new situation and try to reason out uh, logically how those things will happen as well as you know I it can need to even take it to the point where um, in these universes that you are creating for yourself logic <laughs> itself is a precognition that we are just assuming as a given and so you can actually change, a logic in and of itself and say, okay, if logic operated in a totally different way, how would that change, you know, the way that we interact with this universe at a really basic level? So you could do this with, with just about anything that you wanted, right? You could say, what if, I mean, I was joking about what if our hands were on our feet or something like that? That's not, that's not quite what you mean, right? Um, no. But we'd be doing things like, well, what if my emotional makeup was different than it was so that, um, I don't know, every time I felt happiness, um, I also felt guilt, you mm. know, would I want to be happy then or, or not? And then you, you got to make it a bit more concrete, though, I think. Right. Imagine yeah. a scenario. Um, and so if I, if I felt like this and I'm. Um, like my loved one was wanting me to go to Disney World with them and I know that that would bring me happiness to go to Disney World with them but I also have a desire to make sure that my loved one um, has a good time yeah. would I go okay that's 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 a good example there so we got to end now and uh, we're going to pick up with some more thought experiments I think next week right so you right. lead us out on some final ideas or thoughts or our final thought this week is another little quote from Martin Luther King Jr. It is as this. We as a nation must undergo a radical revolution of values. We must rapidly begin the shift from a thing-oriented society to a person-oriented society. Thus, compassion is more than flipping a coin to a beggar. It comes to see that an edifice which produces beggars needs restructuring.